everybody, it's Keith Rainwater again, the designated drummer, and I am uh, in the room here with uh, one of my favorite people in the world, Michael Britt. Well, I say that because he's Aww, here right now. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> Michael Britt is... What else are you going to say? I'm three feet right, away. He's standing right, he's sitting right here. <laughs> and I'm not in the band cave this time. Um, I'm actually uh, in... We're out on the road, to, you know, with Lone Star here, and um, just took advantage of his time here. And we're in our hanging out in our hotel here, just kind of having fun, and... Uh, um, it's been a fun summer, and uh, we're just continuing to play some live shows together. And for a couple years, yeah, we've been doing this for a couple years. Couple of years together, yeah. yeah. I've been in Lone Star for twenty-seven years, and that, well, that would make you have been in Lone Star for thirty almost. Thirty yeah. almost. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. Wow. And then you and I played together in Canyon a year and a half before that. So. Yeah. Right. There's only like a two-year period where we haven't been playing together in the last thirty years. So. That's right. That is very true. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Golly, and we still kind of like each other, sort of. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, now, not, uh, normally I have drummers on the show, um, and we focus on what am I doing drumming here? and career, stuff like that. But the reason I have you on here is because <laughs> you, over the years, you've always had this really interesting perspective of drumming and drummers, and it's sort of like uh, thinking outside the box. Or Since you're not a drummer, you, you approach drums from an outside standpoint. Sometimes that clears my mind and makes me think like oh yeah of course why didn't i think of that um and you just have a really good observant way of listening to drummers and thinking about well, drummers. i'm a fan of good drumming so i mean I, I love you know most there's a lot of times i don't listen to the music for guitar i mean i listen to it because the drums or the bass player or whatever i mean if, if there's somebody doing something really cool that gets my attention i remember i saw tim makers in the smoking section one night and they're all monster players everybody on the stage 20 guys on stage in a little bar in nashville but the bass player that one night it's the first time i'd ever seen gary lund play and i couldn't i watched the bass player all night he was so in the pocket and so and it's like that you know i could go see a band or whatever and if, if the drummer's really good you're just you're kind of just locked in and blown away by what they're doing do you would you say that it is what percentage of it is like listening and what percent of it what percentage of it is do you hear with your eyes, like when you watch a drummer? Um, it's some of both because sometimes they're doing stuff that doesn't sound hard until you watch them do it and you're going, oh, yeah, that's that's pretty tricky. you know. Oh, and sometimes sense. they're just playing something that sounds so simple, then you just realize, you know, they're just in the pocket, right? So it's, but, and then sometimes they're just really showy, but typically I don't go for just showy to, for the sake of showy. Like Dave Matthews' band drummer is very showy, but he's you know he's blowing bubbles while he's playing these intricate roles and stuff. Um, so much fun to watch, but uh, sometimes I just get into it just because there's a pocket going on, and or just doing something that accents everything in the music. Uh, that's always cool too. When they're, it sounds like the drummer's not just in his own little world. He's listening to every line that the singer's doing and accentuating things to go with the lyrics or whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of so it's like the whole all show, kinds of records. You know, a band, like a really good drummer, starting with a really good drummer and the rest of the band just kind of falling into that pocket, that groove with him. And I always think of drumming and grooves and things like that. It's literally like a groove. It's like the drummer, it's like a piece of cloth and you set weight down in it and it kind of makes a V yeah. and everything else kind of rolls Falls down into yep. that little V, almost like a groove of a record, you know. Yep. And, uh, and a bad drummer can ruin a band. Like, I mean, it could be, you can have the best players on the planet, but if the drummer's bad, I mean, guitar players, luckily, we can mess up and it doesn't kill every groove. But if a drummer's not right in the pocket or speeding up and slowing down, it's like, oh, that's just ruining it. It doesn't for me. feel good. No, it? and it's just, it's hard to listen to. I was listening to a serious radio and heard a live, they always play live versions of stuff. They did a, 
Modern Love by David Bowie, a live uh-huh, version. Right. Oh my God, they were rushing so bad. It's just like, I've, and I love that song, and but it was like hard to listen to. And and I don't know who was rushing. If David was telling him to go faster and faster, or the drummer was just excited. But man, it was hard to listen to. So that kind of stuff drives me nuts. But when you hear really good stuff, you're like, oh wow, that is really cool. I would say that's one of the things I, you know, I've always talked. We'll talk about this later too about uh, having a click track, like when you play live. Is that's one of the uh, proponents of it that uh, I like is the consistency every night of the song not speeding up because right. I've been in bands before where we didn't have click and I don't know if it was because of the energy or you just boredom or of just time tends to speed up songs and I don't understand why that is but well it does. I mean I heard a live version of us doing Memphis one night and uh, Richie used to start it so we just kind of follow him but it was really fast oh my gosh yeah I remember that and then uh, <laughs> so a lot of times it's just after you've played a song so many times you're just I don't know if you're mentally just trying to get through it quicker or you're just trying to give it some energy because you're bored playing it, so you speed it up. But uh, yeah, there's all kinds of yeah. Tempo is such a tricky thing because you don't mm-hmm. want to ever feel like you're dragging, but you all, yeah. you want to have that energy. So sometimes we do knock it up a couple clicks from the record tempo, right? But other times it just sits perfectly at the record tempo. What you said about uh, you said a, a, a live drummer like the David Bowie uh, thing uh, is speeding up and slowing down and stuff like that. Now. That was kind of probably annoying a little bit, but then when you hear a song, a famous song like uh, "Superstition" by oh, yeah. Stevie Wo- Stevie Wonder, and that song speeds up, it doesn't speed up and slow down. It just speeds up. Well, and, it's a slow build. Yeah, I mean, it's it, a slow it build. starts at one tempo and ends at another, but it's just a constant build. So yeah. that's a that's almost it's favorable. almost exactly it's almost it's, rather and it's, and things don't have to be perfectly locked to a grid the whole time. I mean, if you listen to Toto stuff, the Rosanna, yeah. uh-huh. man, it's it changes, but it changes minute amounts. Where it should, because it has an ebb and flow kind of thing. The energy during yeah, the song, like, it breathes a little bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's why I think I get really bored with a lot of the modern music because everything is just locked to a grid, and your brain just doesn't have to think about it, and it almost doesn't catch your attention. Small fluctuations actually catch your attention in a good right. way. Could be, I mean, possibly in a really good way. Yeah, we were talking about that you and I the other day, and that got me interested when you said. Uh, songs say in the 80s or something like that or even like chill hop music or something that has just a drum machine that's just keeping that deep pocket where it's just the same thing over and it's like literally a machine and it doesn't vary and your mind tends to what were you saying tune it out it tunes it out i think our animal brain deep inside of us uh it has to take in all this input from the world around you and so anytime it can make its life a little easier by saying, I recognize this pattern, let's just, okay, we assume it's going to do this because that's what it's doing now and it's going to continue doing that. Or maybe just maybe it's a survival thing in nature. You've got to notice when the tall grass is moving because there might be a predator in it. So you just notice differences in things. And the things that tend to stay the same or static, your brain just kind of tunes it out. And I think it happens in music too. I think your brain just, if you hear the same monotonous thing over and over, it's going to tune that out. So there has to be, that's why a lot of the monotonous songs, they always have like little musical little things coming in and out of it to keep your attention going. And if they don't, man, it just gets really boring really quick. Right. And I guess maybe if you're dancing to it or something, you know, the 80s was a big dance yeah. craze and all that. And people could get out on the dance floor and have these dance mixes of music that lasted 10, 20 minutes yeah. long. And, and people, I mean, if there's something to do, you know, I right. guess that's different. But if you're just sitting there listening, but that's watching, your job as a producer to add all those little ear candy bits to make it not so boring after yeah. eight minutes. Little you know? stabs yeah. and little vocal things exactly. and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Um, but yeah, I know what you mean about that—the uh, tempo thing. I was listening, sitting in my car one time, and I had 
superstition on my playlist, and it, somehow I for, I'd forgotten I had it. Somehow I got put on a repeat, like yeah. where I repeat the same song over again, you yeah. know, and accidentally. And so it went all the way to the end. Uh, superstition, it faded out, and then it started again. And I was like, what song is this? It almost yeah. sounded like a completely different song because it's so slow in the beginning and speeds up. I think he played everything on that, including the drums. It makes me wonder what he did first. Did he do the clavinet and vocal first, and then he followed it with the drums, oh, or did he that's truly interesting. Yeah. play that drum track and speed up like it is? I mean, I don't know how he did that. Yeah. Because how that do you, is wild. I mean, it's easier if you're composing everything and just putting all the parts down if you're on a grid because, you know, you know where to yeah. come in and all that. But back then, there was no grid. There was no computer. There was just tape. And so I don't know how he did that. That would have been wow. interesting to be a part of or just to watch. So um, talking about your early days, um, I was interested in learning why guitar. Like why Why did you, what What was it in that in your early formative years or whatever that, that why did guitar stand out to you? Why was it so like, wow. My earliest memory of wanting to play guitar was listening to, so I was in fifth grade, I think in 76, and Kiss Destroyer came out. So Detroit Rock City, Shock Me, and all those songs. And I got that Kiss album, and that's all I listened to. And I wanted to be Ace Frehley so bad. I mean, I did. I I didn't have a guitar yet. I had a tennis racket then in the room, and I would just look in the mirror and pretend I was playing all these Kiss songs. That was my earliest memory. And then after that, I just wanted a guitar, and I didn't even know how to play. I just So the kid across the street from me, he got a drum set for Christmas. The kid next to him got a bass, and I got a guitar. And we all got our instruments, and we're like, yeah, we can be a band. And we get over to the drummer's house, because that's easier to set up, you know, go around yeah. the drummer. And uh, we realized nobody knew how to play anything. You know, The drummer could actually keep a beat. But yeah, we had then we had to start learning. So I went from wanting to be the guitar player, and then these two new kids moved down the street. This family with two, two brothers, and uh, they both played guitar already. They knew how to play chords and stuff. And so I suddenly lost my gig. So I was the one wanting to be the guitar player in the band, and then all of a sudden I was not. But I was better at learning the bass parts than the bass player. So I would learn the bass parts and play, show him so he could play it, and they would just rehearse in my garage and stuff. So. Um, pretty soon I got to be the bass player of that band and then ended up playing guitar later. But I played bass just because that was the other guitar players were just better on guitar than me. Yeah. I was talking to uh, Ben Caesar the other day with Brad Paisley, and we, we both agreed that, that uh, back in the day, uh, if we ever had to do it over again to go back in a time machine and do it again, we yeah. would buy a PA. Yeah. Because whoever had the PA oh, yeah. had the gig, right? Because right. I was like, well, we can't fire him. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. <that's laughs> no matter how bad he is, put him on tambourine, something. Yeah. We've got to have a PA. That's funny. But uh, um, so, yeah, so guitar, there was just something about it. There was something that, that yeah. you connected with. And then you started playing guitar, and obviously it took a few years to get to Lots. where you were like, you know. Yeah. Like so I had the, the kids that lived down the street that knew more guitar. I would learn from them and then actually teach them stuff if I would learn stuff that they didn't know. And, uh, you know, we'd start out with the simplest songs in the world, Jesse's Girl, do 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 you know, just yeah. stupid stuff. And then we just kind of kept getting a little bit more complicated. So by the end, so that was, I think, in seventh grade we did that. By the time we were in 10th grade in high school, we were playing, we did a couple talent shows and stuff at school where we were playing Rush songs and stuff. And I was playing bass. Wow. But I couldn't play with my fingers. I just used a pick because um, I did never learn how to play bass properly. But I used a pick and played all the Getty Lee stuff. But, I mean, we got to where we were pretty complicated. So by then, by high school, I was actually learning Sultans of Swing on guitar, and I would just sit there in front of my record player and just play it over and over and try to learn every lick. So that was the first song I remember just 
woodshedding for weeks at a time just trying to learn it because I wanted to be able to play that. Yeah. Was it was it like I want to impress my friends, or was it more like in what was going on in your mind? Was it like I want to, I want to be a like a professional guitar player? Or was it more like you know I just wanted, I just to, wanted to be friends. able to do it? I mean, I I just loved it so much. I wanted to see if I could do it, and wanted to do it. And then it's funny because that song is what got me playing with this other band. Uh, they they heard me playing that song. They're like that was really good. So they asked me to come out and jam. So I ended up jamming with them. And then, so that's kind of how I got in that band. And that band is what led me to somehow be where I am today because some of the guys in that band invited me to, when I quit school, quit college and stuff, I went to a band that was with one of those guys. So it's just kind of little baby steps. You don't know where they're going to lead. You know, it could be dead ends, but then years later it opens back up. So, um, yeah, but I think Sultan's a swing is the thing. I played it pretty well. So when they heard me doing it, they just, and, and the lead and everything. What made you go from like rhythm guitar to lead guitar? Did you just have a knack for it? Uh, there are people that are truly naturally talented, and I have some ability. But I mean, early on, it was just work, you know. But I, it's not work when you're doing it because it's fun. But mm-hmm. I wasn't one of those people who just picked it up and could play. You know, I had to sit there and learn it and try to figure out what he's doing. But I had a really good. I got good at training my ear to pick out. You know, because. It's like your your eyes can focus on one thing and it kind of ignores all the other stuff. So your ears can do the same thing. They can focus on that one part on a record. Because back then you couldn't go to YouTube and get stems for everything and hear all right, the individual yeah. parts. You had to just kind of, we called it picking it out, you know, because you're picking the guitar and you're picking it out of the mix. So um, so we'd pick out songs and that's what we just called it. But um, I don't know. I, I worked at it a lot. I mean, I spent a lot of time. Anytime I wasn't doing anything like work, work, I was playing just like you would tell your story about you playing banjo in the middle of the gas station oh, you know that you're yeah, working at but uh just i just wanted to do it it was a compulsion more than anything and i just mm-hmm. wanted to get better and better and better and the other guitar player that lived down the street he just wanted to play faster and faster and faster and he got to where he could just play super fast but to me it sounded like garbage but he, he could play fast so it's yeah. what you set your mind to do i wanted to play well and good with, tone and yeah, stuff and, like that and feeling yeah. and all that stuff and I don't know if I even knew anything about tone back then. I don't know if I knew about tone when we got a record deal. I had to learn that kind oh, of wow, later. Right. Even in Canyon, those that you, you, the tone you were using was probably just a regular amp. And it was fine. No, I well, that's the thing. I was always looking for something, you know. The uh, so the first rig I ever had was cheap little solid state amp, and then I got an overdrive pedal, and then the world opened up because you could play distortion, you know, and that makes everything e- easier. But then mm-hmm. uh, I think when we were playing with Canyon, I I switched to well. Johnny had a Mesa Boogie amp for sale, so I bought one of his amps because I figured he's a pro. He knows what gear to use, and yeah. so I did it. But I didn't use any bit of that amp. I mean, it was just barely on and clean, and then I used pedals and stuff for the rest. Then I bought this cheap rack piece, which at the time had all this sounds in it. And some of those were actually pretty cool. Now, even going back now, I'd probably go, that's kind of neat. But compared to what I do now, I don't think it would be very good. Yeah. But, wow. I mean, I've had to learn. And I remember when we were recording our first album, um, I was struggling a bit because I didn't have any gear, really. I mean, I had one amp that we used on the road, and that was it. And I'd go in there and see Brent Mason's rack with four heads and different stuff, and I'm yeah. like, man, the I'm over What would they call that, an amp far? Amp? An amp? Uh, head, a head, head something. Head, a head case or yeah, something yeah. like yeah, that, where you had case. all the heads of the amps. Yeah. So I eventually worked my way up to that until I had the big four head switcher and all that, but uh, I did notice by the time Lonely Grill came around, I yeah. noticed because I remember I was shooting some behind the scenes film on that stuff, and I look back at that film and I see I noticed a much taller uh, stack of gear uh, well, that to your that was yours, you yeah. know, by, by then. Well, when you're 
we got thrown into it. I mean, we had literally, I owned one amp when we got our record deal and it was a Fender Red Knob Twin. You know, it was like, we, they call them the evil twin. Um, they're not that great. They're, they're fine for just playing bars and all that, which is what we were doing forever and ever. Uh, they don't break down very much and they're, you know, nice and reliable. But then during that first record, I even sat down with Kenny Greenberg, who's a friend of our producers, really good guitar player in Nashville. And he was just showing me some stuff and I was just like, I felt so over my head and almost, not embarrassed, but I didn't, feel, I didn't feel worthy enough to be in there with Brent Mason and all those guys. So I, I worked at it. I thought, okay, what do I need to do to, to get to that thing? And so I started learning about gear and different amps and what they sound like and how you get them. And, and so within a probably a two-year period, I had built my arsenal up, not just to be showy, but just so I could get the different sounds that I wanted and get the different amp tones. And I basically... I think you have to learn from the people that are better than you. Yeah. So I looked at Brent Mason, see what he did. I was watching how he's running his pedals into the, all the different amps and all that and, and where he mic'd his cabinets. And so by the time Lonely Grill came around, I knew a lot more. And then yeah. Dan comes in. We start working with Dan Huff. And he's got a totally different rig, so I learned a little bit more from him about how he did that. Um, but I think be a sponge. Yeah. Just you know, if you're wanting to do this, be a sponge. Learn yeah. from everybody that you think is better than you. And oh, and by the way, Dan Huff uh, was the guitar our producer on the Lonely Grill album. And several albums after that yeah. was the guitar player for the early Shania Twain stuff, and he worked with Mutt Lang. And yeah. he, when you hear that guitar stuff on the early Shania stuff, yeah. um, her first hits that she had out with that's that was Dan Huff playing guitar. Yeah. Well, he started out in a Christian band called White Heart, and then he ended up moving to L.A. and becoming a huge session player. That was right when Steve Lukather from Toto was wanting to stop doing so much session work to do more Toto stuff, and so he started referring Dan, and he played a Dan played a little bit like Lukather, so he started getting all these calls. So he's on oh, right. all these pop records and everything, and then he moves back to Nashville because that's where he's from. And these Nashville producers start using him on everything. So uh, Clay Walker, Clint Black. There's tons of uh, Dan Huff on all the Martina McBride, so he started getting all these, you know, gigs playing Session on country gigs, records, yeah, yeah. Doing, yeah. and that's how I got the Shania gig yeah. and all that. And then from there, he started producing, and we were one of the first acts he started producing. Yeah, I remember it was uh, Laurie White. Yeah, he produced, and then I remember our manager at the time, Bill Carter, had. I was in the office one day, and he said, "Hey, what do you think of this? Listen to this. Uh, there's this producer. He's a young guy, kind of uh, player, guitar player, but he's a great producer. And thinking about having him as." Uh, you're, I think it's a perfect match, him right. being a band person and you guys being a band, you know. Mm-hmm. And it worked great. I mean, it was we had a great run it with was. Dan Huff. But it was, I mean, it was scary. I don't know how you feel when you're sitting in a room with another drummer and just having to feel like you're you're not only competing with him, but you're like, I got to be at least as good as that guy right, or yeah. close to it. And so that's it's a lot of pressure. And I'm sitting here right across from Dan Huff, and I remember. I got so proud. My proudest moments were when I would do something, and we were supposed to, there was this one song, I think it was Memphis, and we were doubling this part, this picking part, and uh, we're just playing eights, but it was just this arpeggiated thing that we're doubling, and we did it and tracked it. I mean, it went by pretty quick, and then so he's in this uh, control room, and then the dreaded solo button came out, and he hit the solo thing on mine and his tracks. The dreaded solo button. Yeah, the dreaded solo. You don't ever want to hear anything in the studio <laughs> on a solo button. Um, so he hits the dreaded solo button, and there's mine and his guitar in stereo and I'm on one side and he's on the other and it was so tight and he just looked at me like good job and I was like oh, 
you know, it's, <laughs> oh, it's just like that's the best feeling you can get is when you know that happens. Yeah, I remember the hardest thing with Dan Huff for me as a drummer was well, first of all, I was like really intimidated, but uh, <laughs> second of all, because he he's not the kind of producer that's just like oh that's yeah that's good that sounds good. He was like okay, uh, you got to think about kick pattern. You got to think about what are you doing on the kick pattern. You can't just do random stuff. It's got to be a pattern. And then if you change to the chorus pattern, you got to go on the other course. You got to do that again, and you got to go back to the verse pattern, kick pattern. I mean, that was like a who would have thought? Yeah. Um, and he was a big proponent in that. And so I would we would do a run of a song, a, yeah. a take, and then he would come back, and he's out there playing guitar, and he's the producer, so he's producing from the guitar chair, and uh, he would say he would say, okay, Paul. Uh, this and that and Michael and we give a little points oh and Keach on the second chorus you changed the kick pattern just a little bit like how did you how do you he had the even biggest, hear that he had the biggest ears he could hear yeah. one note in a chord and think uh, to try mm-hmm. to I mean yeah like he did the same thing with piano he's like you played this one thing blah, blah, blah. just play the lower inversion of that I'm like how did you hear that while you're while you're playing because when I'm playing, playing I don't I hear what I'm playing and I'm concentrating on that He's playing, but he's not even listening to what he's playing. He's just listening to everybody else. That, yeah, and he crazy. just knows. He's just yeah, got he, that. He can brilliant. pick things out. He can compartmentalize or something. I don't yeah, know. he's brilliant. But uh, it, it wasn't so in, like intimidating in a bad way because he's such a great guy, such a kind person. But he would smile and laugh at the same time. He would yeah. say like, "Hey, you're going to change that, right?" Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, um, but uh, he knew so, how to deal with us road musicians. Yeah. We were talking a little bit about um, you figuring things out and all that, and I remember. Uh, during the when we first got our record deal, one of the things we had to do, well, one of the things we had to even before we had our record deal was we had to learn how to play our songs acoustically, and that was such a challenge for me because we would go and do these little acoustic things uh, for the record label or whatever. And I'm a drummer, so I, I don't sing. I'm not singing a part, and everybody else is singing harmony and playing guitars and strumming. And I'm like, well, what? What am I going to do? I don't know what to do. And you said something that just stuck to me, that stuck with me forever. You go, well. What would the coolest drummer in the world do in that situation? <laughs> and like, and I thought, who's the coolest drummer in the world? <laughs> like, what would Steve Gadd do in that situation? And he's in an acoustic thing, and he's in this band, and he and they just ask him to play something. He would just grab anything he could, probably. But um, I thought, well, the coolest thing for me to make it sound like a thing is just to take a snare and put a tambourine on the stand. And I just thought, I took your advice. I huh. thought, what would the coolest drummer in the world do? He'd probably have a snare on a stand and a tambourine with brushes and do some kind of cool thing you know like deal and so i just kind of figured out i took first i had a tambourine a headed tambourine right and i put it between my legs Played and play it with the brushes but then the tambourine rings would dig into my legs after about 30 minutes of we're talking you know sometimes yeah. we had to play for a long time yeah. it was digging into my legs i gotta do something else so i got a snare on a stand and we figured that out but you from the guitar standpoint you had to completely no electric guitar, it's all acoustic, but you had to figure out how to make your electric sound like an acoustic where you could do pedals and stuff, and it was well, pretty brilliant. For the longest time, you had it. well, we had one song called Heartbreak Every Day that when we'd go play for places, I had to use an electric guitar because it was a B-bender thing, and there's no acoustics that I've ever seen with a B-bender. And so I had to have that, so I had a little pig-nose amp that I would play, so we'd, I'd just carry it around. It sounded horrible, but it, it did the job. But then when we'd start doing acoustic gigs, like with your tambourine and stuff, the hardest part for me was... I had to start playing rhythm because Richie, he could play rhythm, but he just wasn't ever really out front. You know, he was right. kind of laid back and kind of. So I just felt like I had to play rhythm all the time. And then when I had to go to a lead, I had to do it in such a way that the bottom didn't drop out, so to speak. But also, you can't really bend. You can't blend your G string because it's wound. So I'd have to figure out how to do all the solos different so that 
that a they were still beefier and low so i'd play them an octave down a lot of times just to keep the bigness of the note because you play little high strings plinky on acoustic it just there's no sustain like electric yeah anyway it's just it's a it's a transition but i think i just had to adjust my my focus like when we're doing those acoustic shows people don't they're not trying to hear ripping guitar solos they really want to hear the vocals and the harmonies so that's kind of what i just thought okay i'm just i'm here to accentuate the harmonies so i just play the little bits and pieces that i could on acoustic but your tambourine i don't know how you did that because if you're just playing on a snare or tambourine you don't have that kick so you don't have the one and the three yeah. so but you have to play those notes yeah but now you're playing them with right. your hands instead of your feet what I used to do was I would listen. I'm a listener. You know, when I play, I try to listen to what the rest, of, especially on the acoustic shows, there's no click. There's no nothing. And the, I have I would put bass guitar in my in my wedge. And then I would kind of almost use the bass guitar as like my kick drum. You know, I'm concentrating on where's that bass going to hit. And I would sort of almost follow him in a way, in a sort yeah. of, I would, I would lead on the backbeat and he would sort of lead on the, I don't know how to explain it, but I would yeah. just sort of feel like that was the bass drum, you know, even though I didn't have a bass drum. And I was just like trying to, and somehow it sort of meshed together. It sounded great. <laughs> I, I actually loved it when we were, you were just on the tambourine, I mean, the snare and the tambourine and stuff. Now we do the bigger ones, and it sounds more like I'm the only one that doesn't have a real rig. Right, yeah. Dean's full piano. You're, yeah. You know, you've got a kick and sound. I, I changed it to, for those who don't know, I, I changed it to uh, a small kick drum. It's a little 16-inch kick. Now, normally kick drums are like 22 inches, 20, 20 is kind of small anyway. And 18 is, I looked at an 18, but there was a 16-inch kick drum that I saw. There was a Ludwig, and I played it, and I was just like, wow, that's that's gutsy little sound and thing so I bought it yeah. and now we have a little bitty 16 inch kick drum and yeah. I've changed I put a little ride cymbal up there which is a crash ride so I can just hit it as a crash or a ride and yeah. then a little hi-hat so it's a little small kind of a cocktail kit but yeah. it really fills out some of the bigger songs that we have to do yeah and I'm the only one still plinking away trying to hold out notes with my acoustic. <laughs> Everybody else is up, <laughs> up their stuff and you're like but I thought it was brilliant because the first time I heard that you had a I guess it was kind of an electric sort of and you ran it through some little pedal or something and it sounded just like an acoustic guitar i was just amazed yeah i've I've used those a couple times you can get electrics with acoustic pickups in them and stuff but if if we're doing full shows of acoustic so if you had to do a lead you could just switch it click a button and you got a little more what sustain or power or something you know yeah um so one of the questions uh back to the beginnings of lone star this was before i joined i joined uh about a year and a, a year or so after they already, you guys had already been going. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Tucker, the first drummer, why him? Now, see, I always try to teach my students um, how to go to an audition and be confident and and to know what bands are looking for in a drummer, so that you feel like you're that guy. You know. Yeah. So, how was Michael Tucker that guy? Well, it's all guys? just who you know back then. I mean, because. Dean, he just grabbed the people around him. Dean is the one that really wanted to make it a band. Richie and Dean had been talking about putting a duo together to play around town just to make a little money. Um, but Dean's the one that said, let's just start a band. And so I think uh, Mike Tucker was the only drummer that he knew. Not the only drummer, but he was, yeah. he was a good friend pro. of his. He was good. a friend of his that he knew back from Texas. And so and John Richie knew from uh, Opryland, working at Opryland. And he didn't, John didn't even know how to play bass. I mean, literally. Didn't never play bass, but he was so talented. He he was one of those naturally talented people. You put a guitar in front of him, and he can make music out of it. Um, but and then Richie just you know did his thing, played keyboards and piano. So the first time we ever got together, we literally just recorded a demo. So like never played with these guys before. I had played with Mike Tucker because 
He was in Canyon after he I took left, your yeah. plate. You and him switched gigs in Texas because he moved to Nashville. You started playing with Full Circle, and he, yeah. he started playing with Canyon. We literally switched gigs, Michael Tucker and I. We yeah. just said, well, swapsies, you know, I'll take that gig and you take this gig. So I had played with him. So that's how I even got called because Dean didn't know me. He knew Tucker, and then Tucker recommended me because we were both in Canyon and just got off the road. So. It was just that's how I got in. It was just networking, and that's how Tucker kind of got in. He knew Dean. Word so, of mouth, basically, just yeah. like hey, I now, know a after, good drummer. After Tucker, we had to audition a couple people, and that was that was a little trickier because we didn't have any relationship with them. You know, beforehand, it was a new drummer coming in, and and I don't know. You're looking for different things at different times. You know, based on and a lot of it's based on what you just had. So yeah. Tucker was a really big hard hitter. Uh, totally different feel from you, which I prefer yeah. your feel. You know, nothing against Tucker, but he just has a different drum feel. Right. And they all do. And Duke had a different drum feel than and Bob. That we had a guy named Duke and a guy named Bob that filled in in between uh, Keach and Tucker. But And Tucker came back another time. Uh, oh, yeah, he from did. What I understand. He came back, and then that's when I joined after yeah. we switched yeah, to his gig a, again. He, he had a little time off, and so he had to come. He came back, and then Ken Mellons went out on the road, so he had to leave again. But yeah. it was weird. Like, one of the drummers had... Hands and feet were not together. I mean, I don't, oh. and I don't mean to say this bad. It wasn't. It always seems like his hands were behind his feet. Oh, I see. Yeah. So if he's playing, even if you know if he's watching a click, his feet sound like they're on it, but the snare sounds like it's just on the back of the beat. Right. And so it makes everything sound like it's slowing down the whole time, just because it's. Some drummers do that on purpose. They, they, they do. They think that they're supposed to kind of lay back or something like that. Yeah. But he's only laying back with his hands, so the feet right. sound. It's, right, it's yeah. the weirdest combination of beats, and then. Bob was really good, but he he just was he was a kind of a pounder. Uh, he I'm trying to, he was more into like I don't remember if it was Neil Peart or somebody. You know, he's just one of those guys that just wants to play more of the prog rock kind of stuff. Right, and we were yeah. a country band, so it just never never was pocketed as much style as style wise. Yeah, yeah. But they were then, both good drummers. It was just different, and so and you know it when you're up on stage. And I've played with uh, other drummers uh, over the years that it just doesn't feel right. You know, right. it's a feel thing, and you gotta right. but. To make yourself feel right, the best thing you can do is stay on tempo as much as you can. Sit in the pocket. Don't rush. Don't. I mean, it's not rushing and dragging. And then don't play too far in the back of the beat or too far in the front of the beat. Yeah. You know, just kind of getting that. Kind of what spot. the song calls for. You know, I always try to when I hear a song, I'm like, what's that style? How does it? I think about it in my mind. Like, is it? Is it? Um, like, is this a George Strait song? And, and I try to emulate what yeah. the album sounded like to right. me, anyway. And, uh, well, anytime we. I would talk about you to other people, and it was like us, they would come in to play. Like we get side guys come in and stuff, and I would just say, "You never have to wonder where the beat's going to be with Keach. You know, I mean, from the Canyon days, you were saying, like, yeah, uh, from there all together. the way yeah. through Lone Star stuff. I mean, you yeah. you were just so solid. Just like you never have to worry that it's going to be there. And yes. even now, even when even if we play not on click anytime, you know, when something goes haywire and the videos aren't working or whatever, and we're playing by ourselves, it just it feels so natural. It feels like there's just a train going down the uh, tracks, and you just hop on it, and it takes you where you want to go. Yeah, that's a good analogy, like a train. Like a, a drummer could be the engine to the train, and it's moving along, and you just want to hop on that train and yep. move with it. Yeah. And you don't even think about it. It's just you hop on it, and it feels right. and because Whatever speed the song is, that's how fast the train's going, and yeah. you hop on there, and you yeah. just to go you're along for the ride. And yeah. me and you and Dean have been playing for so long now. We know what each yeah. other's going to do, where they're going to land, and it, it just, it's pretty, that's true. pretty yeah. effortless. At, at Sometimes Dean can start playing something on piano, just kind of messing around, and then I'll kind of come in, and then yeah. like Robbie will play, our bass player will play something, Something and it's be kind of almost like a song, you know. Yeah. And then Dean will say, "Hey, wait, let, let me just turn his phone on yeah, and record, record it. it." And I'll go, "I'll send you my bill <laughs> <laughs> for that demo." But um, 
Uh, what else was I going to say? Um, but so, some drummers, you know, they'll they'll speed up or rush or drag coming out of fills. You know, you never do that. You've always been just solid as a rock coming out of fills. I think, yeah. Over the years, we've we've gotten to where we know each other. We play well together, and, and you can't help but do that. If a band, I say, if a band can personality wise stay together for yeah. a long time, they got a great thing. But what's that saying? Most rock bands, by the time they uh, they're really super tight, they they can't hate each other. Yeah. They're like killing each other. They're ready. They quit. Yeah. But um, so uh, the Kemper stuff. You want to talk a little bit about that? So the, sure. Just to let people know, uh, maybe just let people know what the Kemper is. So for people that aren't guitar players, the Kemper is basically a computer that emulates guitar amps, and not just amps, but amps and speakers and effects and all this stuff. So um, in the old days, you would have a guitar pedal board maybe with a bunch of pedals on it and then an amp and then you'd have to mic the amp sometimes you weren't responsible for the miking the sound company would come in and mic it and they would just throw a 57 over the top and so it didn't really matter what how much money you spent on your guitar and your pedal board and your amp because somebody's just going to put a 57 in front of it just in the wrong spot and it's going to sound bad out front so over the years i figured out okay i want my amp to be mic'd with these mics at this position and all that just from years and especially it got really in focus when we started using in-ear monitors so it's, you're not just standing in a room with this stuff and you're hearing it from 20, you know, 15 feet away off axis. Now you're hearing it an inch and, or less than an inch away from your eardrum, wherever those mics are. And it makes a huge difference. An inch either way makes a big difference to what you're hearing in your ear. So once we moved into inner monitors, I got really picky about where my microphones were, baffling around it, facing them off the stage so I could turn it up to get the amp sounding right. Because... If you mic an amp that's just barely on, you know, it's kind of anemic sounding and doesn't have any sustain. So anyway, all the stuff I learned over the years of how I like my amp set up, how I want the microphones and which speaker I like better, which speaker cabinet I like it in. So then they came out with this piece of gear called the Kemper, which emulates all that stuff. But it doesn't just emulate it, it you capture it. So I got it in 2014 and started profiling my amps. I got it so that when we would do fly dates, I could take this little Kemper and have my my big rig that i would normally have but just have it in a portable package and then after two months i'm like well this sounds so consistent night after night why take all this other stuff out anyway it's just it's a tiny little yeah. box that's a little toaster that has all the sounds so i just started using it and then pretty soon i had friend i was talking about how great it was and then friends would buy them and they're like it mine doesn't sound as good so i would give them my sounds and then pretty soon somebody said why don't you start trying to sell them because they were just Opening yeah. it up for people to sell this. So and for I started, people, for people that don't know, not, he's not selling the Kemper itself. No. He's selling the actual sounds of the profile of the amp. So the, the, it's basically a computer that that imitates the amp sound. Yeah. And he's selling his tweaks. Of yeah. The, so when I profile design. an amp, I get just a file, and the files back then were like 4K, teeny tiny little files, just a few numbers that tell the Kemper what it sounds like. And so, yeah, you could take. My own amp. So I'm pretty soon I had like 20 different amps profiled, and then now it's a couple hundred amps that I've got profiled. And each one of those amps, I've got 20 to 30 profiles of each one. So it's thousands of profiles that I've made. But, but yeah, people can take, if they buy a Kemper, they can go to my website, buy the sounds, download them into their Kemper, Kemper and there's the same sounds. And, you, and then from there, they can still tweak them and make them sound like their own kind of sounds, but it's a good starting point. So they can just buy a guitar plug it into a Kemper with your sounds and it's just amazing sounding. Oh, yeah. It's all your, you can, your EQ and tweaks. And you don't have to use microphones anymore. You can, I mean, yeah. it's 
great for playing at home or recording at home, especially because uh, the last two records we've done, I've done all my. I mean, we'll track together at the big place. but yeah. I'll use my Kemper for that, and then when I go to overdubs, I can use those same sounds because I just hit store in the studio and then go home if I need to replace parts. There's the exact sound that I used, and then if I want to do overdubs, I can do them in the middle of the night wearing my pajamas, you know, not bugging anybody else because it's all direct. There's no loudspeakers. There's no microphones. Thanks for that image. I know. Well, <laughs> They're footy pajamas They're with bunnies. Yes. <laughs> that brings me to my next question is, what do you think that the future of uh, albums and studio and all that stuff is? Because everybody, all, most of the drummers I know now, and other musicians too, but drummers have a kit set up at their house running through Pro Tools, yep. and they're doing drum parts uh, uh, for other people at home, you know, and like you had mentioned, doing your guitar parts at home. Well, I was worried about five years ago that real drummers are going to go away because... There's just so many outlets, you know, for electronic drums and digital drums. So if you are a producer at home that doesn't know how to play drums, you can sit there and create a pattern and you don't need a drummer anymore. But it's kind of like the same thing with guitar players. Uh, YouTube has shown us that there's just a billion great musicians out there just waiting to be discovered or seen. Because you can't go on Instagram or YouTube without seeing some new young kid playing guitar that's like blowing me away. I'm like, holy crap, I was never that good at that age. And same thing with drummers. I see just monster drummers, even these 12-year-old kids doing yeah. it. So I think now that there's this whole world and social media will get them visibility. Now, whether they make records and make music, because the whole the whole point of all of this is not to just play and be great players. It's The goal to me would be to make good music. Right, yeah. And that has almost nothing to do with being a monster player. So taste really. versus, uh, versus like ability or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, taste there's plenty like... of amazing guitar players, but you don't hear them on the radio because they're not playing popular-sounding songs. They're playing noodly-noodly, you know, things. Same way with drummers. There's phenomenal drummers can do all this complicated stuff, but can they play, you know, Ain't Too Proud to Beg in a pocket, yeah, you know? Right. It's like... So what do you want to be known for? Do you, there's And there's no right thing. You could be the best monster player and have a huge YouTube following and be happy. Yeah. And, or you can try to find a band full of guys that makes music that people want to listen to over and over. And it's, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just whatever makes you happy. Do you ever think that there will be another Neil? I know there's not going to be another Neil Peart, but do you think there will be a day when they find a drummer, the, the guys find, like Alex and no. Getty, they'll find another drummer that says, wow, he is a dead ringer for Neil Peart. He could totally play every song. And well, do you I, think they'd ever do You know that? Joel Stevenette, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, to me, he's the guy. But yeah. I, I really think they're, they, they've said they're never going to play again. Yeah. I think Alex's uh, arthritis is just getting too bad. It's probably that time. Yeah, yeah. right. I, I understand. I that. mean, and I don't blame him. I mean, I've, every now and then my finger starts hurting, so uh, I can't imagine he's 20 And they don't need the money. I probably don't need the money. There's no, no real but reason Joel's, to do it. He's recorded so many tracks of him playing along with Rush songs, it sounds just like Neil Peart. So now it'll just be all about cover bands, right? Yeah. And tribute bands, yeah. Tribu- yeah tribute bands, yeah. yeah. Tribute bands. Yeah. That's, and I, Honestly, those are the bands. I, I just saw a Queen tribute band last night in Nashville. And the lead singer wasn't Freddie Mercury. Nobody's Freddie Mercury. But And vocal-wise, he sounded really good on some stuff and kind of off on other stuff, but his personality was such that it made you like him. You know, he's just one of those oh, see, yeah. self-effacing kind of guys that, you know, he's just a fan of Queen and wanted to do it. And super nice and funny. But um, I love tribute bands. I'd rather go see a tribute band than just see the same 12 bar songs over and over. Yeah, I think there's something about a tribute band. There's kind of no pressure. It's not like an expensive ticket. You're not going to worry about getting your seat and all that. It's just like, just go have fun. Well, and it's and a it's respect close thing. close enough to the real band. It's a respect thing. You yeah, know, they they right. like that music so much that they want to copy it as well as they can. And mm-hmm. there's a Steely Dan cover band in Nashville that's amazing. I mean, I'd almost, I saw Steely Dan and them within the same 
few months at one time, and they sounded more like the original Steely Dan than Steely Dan did then. Wow. I mean, because Keith Carlock is a great drummer, but man, he just didn't sound like uh, Bernie. I mean, what's his name? The um, uh, the Steely Dan. Um, I know what you the mean. Purdy, uh, Bernard Purdy. Pur- Bernard Purdy, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Keith Carlock is an amazing drummer, but he doesn't sound like Bernard Purdy. So on those songs that the Purdy shuffles on, it just sounded like a rocker playing yeah. through it. So it... The Steely Dan cover band, tribute band, sounded more like the record than yeah. Steely Dan did. There was a on the Nashville uh, Facebook um, group thing, drummers, drummers, Nash, the Nashville drummers Facebook page is what I'm trying to say. Um, there was this question like um, for cover songs, cover bands, whatever, not cover bands, but more like cover songs. Mm-hmm. Do you play the Do you play the part like the drum part exactly like the record, or do you are you of the school of like you know play it make it your own kind of thing? I mean, and of course my take on it was uh, I said honor the the um, the signature licks, honor the signature licks, and the rest of it just try to get as close as you can, yeah. but sort of make it you know make it like honor the the original well, as best you can. You got to play it like play it like the original as much as you can, but then. It's got to have feeling in it. So if you're thinking about it too much and trying to do that, then you're going to lose the feeling and it's going to sound mechanical. Um, So it needs to be you, your expression, but at the same time, they need to recognize the song. Yeah, and that's what I always tried to do when I'm copying guitar solos. If it's something I just love, I'll I'll copy it as good as I can, but at the same time, like we do the Pink Floyd Another Brick in the Wall. I do most of the same notes just like him, but at the same time, I'm thinking, okay, I want to play with the same emotional content that he had. And it's a... It may be slightly different, but it's still emotional. You got to put some sort of emotional in. You know, yeah, I was talking to in. Ben Ben Caesar the other day about we were talking about click and things like that, and we were talking about songs in the set that have click and songs that don't. And I said, well, there's one song that we do that really doesn't need click, but I use it anyway because of you have an echo thing on your guitar that yeah. in the beginning is just kick drum. It's 104 beats per minute, and if that's not at 104 beats per minute, it, the, delays, the echo doesn't delay doesn't work. Yeah. So just to help your delay sound I have a little drum machine that I play 104 beats per minute it just has yeah. a little do 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 and uh, otherwise I start uh, shuffling my delays yeah yeah so that's just something that uh, you and I've worked out over the years that just years of playing together and yeah. all that and uh, wow it's great to have you it's, here with my it's really fun to have a band that you play with the same guys over and over because there's tons of players in Nashville that they just go sit in. Like, I've got the 10 to 2 shift at blah, 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 and they're playing with different people every day. Now, not everybody. A lot of them do have, you know, the same people they work with, but that would just be so hard to just... You're yeah. playing these same songs, but the different cast of characters every day or two. Right, yeah. Just, you can't really settle into any sort yeah, of... so you don't uh, get into that locked groove. Yeah, right. And that's kind of where we started when we were just a bar band. We were just... We wanted to be the tightest band out there. Yeah. And we, I still think... I mean, playing 30 years, we still... Still we'll play a, a sound check, you know, sound check. We'll play a song. We're like, damn, we're, we're yeah, pretty good. Pretty damn good, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I always like just how uh, one thing I really liked about this band, and it was similar to Canyon in the way that uh, we always with just attention to detail was yeah. always there. You know, all the other bands before that, it was kind of good enough or whatever. When I joined Canyon, I learned so much. I was such a different guy. You know, before, when I first joined Canyon, I was kind of cocky and I thought I was pretty good and all that. And uh, because they, I had the job with Canyon, I didn't have to audition or anything. They, yeah. they just, uh, Barney, who was an old sound man that I knew a long time ago, was running sound for them. He says, no, no, you need to get that guy. And that made me feel good because that's ex- exactly what I wanted to be all the years of being yeah. a drummer. And I remember hearing some guys talking, um, 
this would have been about mid-80s or something. I really wasn't a great drummer then. I was just learning. But I heard them talking about another drummer, and they go, man, you got to get that guy. You should get that guy. It wasn't me, but it was, yeah. they're talking about another drummer. And I think his name was Mike McCaska or something like that. He was playing... He was like a really sought after, uh, great all around drummer, and they go, "You should get, you should get that guy." And I wanted so bad to be that guy, yeah. The, the, you know, to be the one that they would say, "We should get that guy." And so when I joined Canyon, it was like, "They should get Keith. You should get that guy." <laughs> I kind of became the one. I just kept working at it and working at it, yeah. and I finally got to where people would say that. And somehow, I don't know. So like when I did the audition with Canyon, like. How did that go down when I wasn't in the room when y'all were talking about it? Like, <laughs> um, if I remember right, uh, I don't even remember any other guitar players that we auditioned. I don't think we even did. No, huh. we did. We, there was a day that we had rented this place where we were going to audition guitar players, and a lot of the other guys were sort of like uh, strummers, and there really wasn't wasn't really any good lead yeah. players. Uh, and you came in, and it was just like a, a glove. It fit right. It's perfect. It well, was and that's like, the thing. If you're joining a band that has been playing for a while, I, I did. I just learned all of Johnny's parts or the parts that were on the record. I just learned them as good as I could. So if I would have made them all my own, it probably would not have been as good an audition because they want to be able to visualize, okay, if this guy comes on stage with us, it's going to sound like the record. And so you show them, it's going to sound like the record. Yeah. And then you can branch out or you know embellish a little bit as you go. But yeah. especially if you're auditioning for a gig, just... You're going to know ahead of time, but you're going to talk to him. It's like, hey, how do you want these songs? Do you want me to play them just like the record? And that's always the first question. You want me to play them like the record? And if they say, yeah, just learn it like the record. It's easy. Yeah. It takes your brain off of it. I always thought uh, if I was ever to do it again and I was going to audition for a big band or whatever, I would try, I would do every sneaky thing I could to get a tape of their live show or to be totally prepared, you know, yeah. and just learn, not only just learn all their songs, but. Uh, get a tape of their live show and just say, you know, I already know your show. I yeah. already have it all down. Let's, Let's play. And listen yeah. to the endings and learn yeah, the endings. Yeah, listen to the endings and I've got, I've got it all down to how impressive that would be if you yeah. walked into a gig and go, I'm I'm good to go. Yeah. I mean, if you do your show the same way as you used to, yeah. you know, like recently, then and somehow if you could get a tape, I thought that would be my fantasy to learn the whole show. I actually did that the first band I ever was in. They they hired me. They wanted me to play drums and I went out with my little reel-to-reel tape recorder. This wouldn't have been about 1980. Two, and I recorded the band live, and I went home and I studied every little uh, intro and tempo and like outro and everything, and I learned all their songs. Yeah. And I went in there, and I, someone said one time, they said, "Wow, it's like we never even changed drummers. It was <laughs> like you just played it perfect." You know, yeah, that's awesome. But uh, I mean, another thing, and this is just to pat you on the back because you are the designated drummer. But um, <laughs> it's like when you go in the studio. I learned really quickly. You can't be married to anything. You have to be open-minded. And if somebody, because you may think you're playing the coolest thing ever, but the producer, he may he may hear something totally different in his head. So if he says, "Yeah, can you do something different on that?" You've got to suddenly just switch gears and forget what you thought was great and do something else. And we've always been it. We've always had a good. You and I and Dean have had a relationship where we're in the like we uh, do pre-production so we're working out these songs hammering out the kick patterns and all this stuff you know those are almost the most fun times for me because we're we're kind of not really clashing but you know you have things you want to you want it to be Dean has things as he comes from that producer mentality and I'm kind of in between trying to pick and choose which you know bits but you've always been really good about being open-minded and letting us non-drummers point you in a direction maybe that you would not have thought to go and then by the end by the time it comes out there's like a it's a blend of everything it's blend what you kind of wanted to do with some bits of dean and maybe an idea that i had thrown in which is i think that's cool yeah it's fun to collaborate like that and to 
to go but in. But to be open-minded, a lot of drummers yeah. aren't right. that open-minded. They're so just, you go drummer. out the door and you just listen to each other, and yeah, because yeah. you've always had a good in, insight of what should be played, what could be played that would be cool, and not and not what the typical drummer would do. And there was one song we were doing where in the beginning of the song, um, it was I was just going to do like kick drum or something like that, some kind of intro, and you said, "Why don't you do like a." On the snare, why don't you do the t -t 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 -t, like almost like a march thing? And I was just like, I would never have played that. Never. I think it was mm. the future. No, what was it? One of those songs we did um, um, in like '07 or '08. Yeah. Uh, we were working on an album, and uh, and I, you just had me doing this thing on the snare, and I thought that was the coolest thing. I like made the whole hmm. song. It was so fun, you know. Yeah, that, that's the fun. And I could, you know, I'm sure there are many times I was wrong, telling you to point you in a direction that was like, oh, okay, that was a bad idea. Oh, it sounded good in my head. Back up. <laughs> But anyway, well, thanks for talking to me, man. Absolutely. This has been so awesome. And uh, I'll see you uh, see in a couple hours. <laughs> <laughs> a couple hours, yeah. yeah this You're is the fun. one counting to four, right? I, I'm the one counting off, yeah. Okay. And we'll, uh, we'll do our thing. Cool. And uh, anyway, so this has been Designated Drummer with my guest Michael Britt here. Um, thanks for stopping by, and awesome. we'll see you tonight. Thanks for having me. See you in a couple hours. See you.